oh, I hate these ad breaks. I gotta wait forever to find out if I'm actually on the dang stream or not. There's got to be a better way. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't click on it. Idiot. Now it's the commercial. There I am. There's me. Hello. I'm on TV. On the internet. How's everybody doing? Everybody feeling good? Uh, feeling good? Woo! Alright. Uh, what's up? Beautiful day here. Beautiful day. Not too hot. The backyard grilling zone is uh, got a nice cool breeze running through it. You got the sink back here, all the trees. It's, it's very nice. But uh, I do think I should get some more plants back here. If I sign a... If I, keep this place for another year I'll definitely get trees or get plants for next uh, next spring it's a chill zone and a grill zone it's true so I was thinking about continuing on something I was talking about yesterday uh, talk about statues because apparently that's what uh, the protests are now about getting rid of statues and whether it's good to do that uh, I think if anybody saw the stream yesterday, they'd know where I would ima they imagine where I would probably be on that and they're correct This is another example of people dealing with or refusing to deal with the lack of a structure the lack of any kind of meaningful deliberative body that can create policy and then implement it through people who are dedicated to a cause it's all we really have is a bunch of people who are sick of bullshit and are doing what they think will expresses their their uh, their sickness of said bullshit. Uh, but the problem comes, and this is the exact same thing that happened with Occupy, uh, is that because you don't have deliberative processes and you don't have discipline within a movement, uh, people kind of gravitate towards certain things as actions, as goals, that substitute for the greater goal that is not really uh, pursuable without a structure. Like, you need a structure to really pursue the kind of huge radical changes to policing that are being demanded right now, and we don't have that. Um, so, people point to, people gravitate towards things in front of them that have a concrete meaning. At Occupy, that meant, eventually, the Occupy movement became about staying in the park. It was, it was specifically, we're going to stay here. Nothing more dramatic than that, which meant that when, when they decided to break it up, that was pretty much the end of it. And now, we're in a similar situation, at least it looks like, we'll see, like I said, everything is changing and nothing is, is, is fixed, but the momentary conditions are that knocking over statues feels really good, and so people want to knock over statues. And God bless them, go for it, you know? As a team building exercise, what could be figuring out how to pull some stupid uh, chintzy confederate uh, factory made hollow fucking Easter uh, bunny ass piece of shit uh, sculpture down? Uh, that's my funniest thing about all these, all those daughters of the, Revo uh, the American Revolution confederate monuments that are up there, they're all absolute dog shit. They're hollow, they cost like five bucks, they're mass-produced. It was all part of a propaganda campaign at the time, at the turn of the century. They're not art in any meaningful sense. 
so people are knocking them over and they're having fun. And people are like, hey, let's knock over Columbus. Let's knock over the Founding Fathers. Let's knock over U.S. Grant, which, I mean, I get what they're saying. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't knock over, I wouldn't knock over a Grant statue. But I can't really blame anybody for doing whatever they want because, like I said, all we're doing is determining the moral, morality of the action. Because the question of whether it's an effective or meaningful thing is beside the point because we couldn't stop them if we wanted to. Nobody can stop anybody from doing anything because nobody is ordering anyone to do anything because there's no structure. The hope of this Bernie's campaign, in my mind, the big hope was to give structure to the, 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 the burgeoning alienation with, uh, with capitalism as it's being practiced in this country. And uh, sadly, it did not have last long enough, and then it ran headlong into the social isolation of COVID to do that. And now people are once again trying to re reimagine a um, a practice without uh, without a movement and without coordination. Coordination is the most important part. Coordination is what takes the numbers, the raw numbers, and makes them effective. Coordination was what makes it possible for you to do things like shut down the ports like they did uh, last week in San Francisco. But that's because that's a fucking union and it's a radical union, one of the most radical unions in the country still. The, uh, the dock workers there. Uh, Gus Hall's old union. Hot Communist Party hotbed throughout the 20th century. Uh, now, we, the rest of the country doesn't have that and so something like pulling down a statue feels like it's, it's, it's doing something. But it's not really. I mean, you could pull down statues as part of celebration of a new power taking, put it coming in and changing, you know, the 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 cultural matrix, the, the cultural value system. But pulling down the statues doesn't make that happen. Uh, it's a result of the fact that we have totally confused the symbolic and the and the material realms, and, and we really do think because we operate almost exclusively in our lives at the symbolic level, that fucking with the symbolic order will somehow filter down to change the material conditions. And it don't work that way. Uh, changes changes that, appear, that, that occur purely at the symbolic and cultural level will be recuperated always by the material conditions if they don't change. So that's why it's always a bummer to see something like, okay, now we're all going to talk about statues and who should pull down and who should go up. I'm actually with Matt Brunig in the idea that there shouldn't really be statues of individuals. That's kind of messed up, really. I mean, you're turning this person into a god. I mean, that's what they did in the... They did a statue of, like, uh, Caesar or fucking uh, Titus or something. They were... That was part of the beatification of, of, of the emperors. The only humans, the only humans that should have statues are fictional characters like RoboCop and the Fonz, or local heroes like some guy who like assembled a really big ball of twine, or uh, you know, save, save some babies for a from a uh, from a well or something. I mean, my God, you know, do you really think humans make history individually? What are you twelve? We are all merely uh, able to operate in the narrow confines given to us by our place and time and birth. The idea that any that people, individuals, make history. No, they make that... Individuals make history, but not as they please, as Marx said. 
And, uh, but anyway, so I don't really care about the statues either way. I don't care if we get rid of every statue. David Roth has pointed out, they're not even good to look at. They're based, they're almost always the most boring part of any public, uh, uh, public art uh, installation. Uh, abstract statues tend to be much more interesting than ones of specific people. Uh, but the degree to which the moment becomes about defending or condemning the removal of statues is the degree to which people have given up on changing the actual conditions and turned them into a fight over symbols. A culture war, as it were. And I could very well see a world where, by November, uh, the entirety of this moment of, of unrest and revolt has been boiled down to a, a yes-no question about, like, should we get rid of Mount Rushmore or something like that. But it doesn't have to be that way. Things can change. Things are always changing. I'm just saying right now it's not a good development that I'm, I'm not personally terribly thrilled with it. Uh, and it's... It, it certainly doesn't speak to strength. It speaks to confusion and um, and powerlessness. But that is the defining characteristic of Americans, so it makes sense. Uh, I will say that the, uh, that the, that the re-litigating the Civil War uh, and what caused it, I'm always up for that. Because that's one where it's like really a slam dunk. Like, there's no way to argue with it. There's only, the only way you can make it arguable is if you decide to pull some sort of rhetorical trick and change definitions or something. Again, the, the, the sectional crisis in America that led to the Civil War was caused by one thing above all else, that on the continent of the United States, uh, the, the land, the, the rich uh, black soil that allowed for uh, mass cultivation of staple cash crops, not stable crops, cash crops, like tobacco and cotton, was largely confined to the southern states. And the thing about cash crops is, in a context like America, right, where you've cleared out the native inhabitants and you have this huge tracts of free real estate, as uh, Tim Heidecker would call it, The only way that you can get, that you can create an economy of scale there that will make growing something like cotton or tobacco uh, profitable is if you have basically free or low, uh, incredibly low cost uh, labor. And the problem with that from a colonial, like a, the perspective of, uh, of, the col of the colonizers was even if they wanted to use colonizers to do that, they couldn't have. Because when you have that kind of, uh, of uh, abundance, that kind of uh, abundance in real estate, as it were, there's no way in hell that you could pay people enough to do the work. Because it sucks. It's fucking terrible. The reason that they were able to put all those Brits into the dark satanic mills is that they'd enclosed all the free pasture lands before that. They, people had no condition. They had nowhere to go. All the land was owned. They had nothing to do but work in the factories. In a colony, no, no colonist could ever be made to work picking cotton at a price that would make picking that cotton worth picking, worth, worth creating a profit for the investor, for the person who, the, the, the aristocrat who owned the land, because they could just leave. 
They could just go get. They say, "Fuck you! I'll go over the village. I'll go over the thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll live in the in the in the hills. I'll, I'll, I'll grow corn and I'll make whiskey, just like they did in the north, just like the small colonists in the north and in Appalachia. The person who's doing that uh, that work has to have no choice. They have to have nowhere to go. So hey, if their skin brands them as part of a a, a class that is unfree labor, then they don't have any options. They have to work for whatever. Uh, they have to work for, for on, on the terms of their owner, as it were, because they've been pulled out of their, uh, their where they're from. Uh, the first generations of slaves that know no English language, uh, total disorientation across the land, and then put into a place where there's nowhere to go because if you're there, people know you're not supposed to be, and that's a thing that. They could never have done to any colonist, and that's why indentured servitude kind of went away over time, because they'd say, fuck you. And that's where it all started from. Like, everyone wants to talk about, like, oh, it was a tariffs or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, but why did the South not want tariffs? Because they were an export economy, because they were exporting cotton, like, the, like that was it. Because they, it was a, cla it was a classic uh, uh, latifundus situation where you had these, these decadent uh, plantation owners with no interest in seeing development. They didn't care about roads and, and schools and any of that bullshit. They wanted profits for them. And that meant low ta tariffs so that they could sell, uh, so that they could, um, so that they could pay as little as possible for imports. In the North, they have industry because they didn't have those huge swaths of bottomland that could be turned into slave plantations. People had to work as, as the yeoman farmers, the flinty New England farmers. They're called flinty because New England soil is basically rocks. So everything that comes out of it, all the conflicts, all the conflicts that you can point to and say it wasn't slavery, it was X, it wasn't slavery, it was Y, they all emanate from that structural material reality. The, necess the necessity of slave labor to make plantation agriculture viable. Over time that changes as the mechanics change or whatever, but at the, at w in, in, in the early stages when you create those structures that then become self-reproducing social orders, which the, the South created very quickly, uh, that wasn't the case. And so that means that during the Civil War the Union was uh, the progressive side. I mean, if you're talking about good guys or bad guys, that's dumb because that doesn't really apply historically. That's not really a thing, uh, for the most part. In, in, in terms of like grand sweep, like individuals can behave virtuously, but but for the most part, states don't. They they operate from self what they perceive as self-interest, and so you have different self-interest between uh, the northern sort of political uh, class, the hegemonic political class in the north, and the southern political class hegemonic political class in the South. Because remember, there were tons of white Southerners who didn't want to break away and in fact fought the Confederacy and resisted it being drafted and um, and in the case of Western Virginia literally seceded from it. Um, and those places coincidentally were the places where plantation agriculture was least prevalent because it was too hilly, it was too rocky. Wherever there were mountains in the South, uh, the Eastern Carolinas, or the Western Carolinas, Eastern Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, Western Virginia, northern, northern, uh, even in the deep, deep south, there were huge pockets of resistance to the Confederacy in northern, i.e., Appalachian, um, 
Mississippi and Alabama. But the America was the progressive, the United States, the Union was the progressive force. Uh, and I think like there's, there is this sort of like too clever by half leftist move sometimes to say, a lot of this actually you see with uh, like black radicalism and stuff that, that doesn't want to give the white man any credit, which, hey, I understand not wanting to give white people any credit for anything. But where it says, oh, the North was actually just trying to clamp down and impose like its industrial capitalist hell uh, economy on the rest of the, the country. And the thing is, is that that didn't really exist yet in 1860. It was still in its. Inf it was still a proto. I mean, the uh, the vast majority of of, of America's of, of the cotton that was made in the South went to Europe, went to England specifically, because that's where the industrialization uh, started earliest, and that's where it was most intense. So that's where the, the capacity for turning raw cotton into uh, finished linen, whatever, was was most uh, advanced. The U.S. didn't become an industrial economy, really, until after the Civil War, for the same reason that the British did. War is a capital, is a, war tends to, in the modern context, uh, accumulate capital in such a way to, to, to boost all of the, 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 the present, but, uh, the present conditions, uh, the present progressive moves towards industrialization. All, like, if, if you have a process of industrialization, it is radically accelerated by war, by the, st by, by, by the state investment in industry that comes with fighting a war. Uh, we were made into an industrial capitalist society by the Civil War the same way that the Napoleonic Wars are what made England into the paramount industrial power of the 19th century. But nobody knew that at the time. Guys like Lincoln weren't fighting for industrial hegemony, they were fighting for the Whig ideal, which was the small holding farmer in equal competition with, uh, or in an equal position with all other uh, strata of society with, when it comes to rights and abilities, uh, and in an equal position with anyone who would hire him because you could get land. And of course, this is all based on expropriation of Native American land. It's all based on, it's the, 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 and that is the foundational difference between the United States and, and the, the, the European countries we're always comparing ourselves to. The cultural, all the cultural distinctions come from the reality of a continent's worth of land that has been decided is free because the people who are on it aren't really people. As, they, as uh, Tim Robinson would say, um, they, they, uh, so I, I think you should leave. They're not really supposed to be here. It's okay. That's what, uh, that's what makes America what it is. And the Whig idea was, like I said, if you get rid of slavery and, and, and white man is not competing with slaves, and this became eventually the hegemonic belief of, uh, of white Northerners generally, including Democrats, which is what led to the Democratic Party breaking up in 1860, uh, is that they would not accept a, uh, a Southern candidate. They would, they, the Northern Democrats would not accept the, the, the southern half of the party dictating their candidate, which before they would have been fine with. But by 1860, uh, the, 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 the sexual crisis and specifically the border war in Kansas had really changed that. And, and uh, white people, white men in the North were becoming more and more aware of the idea that they were in competition in some way with slavery as a economic institution. Uh, and so they, they were like, no, we don't want that. The, the Whig idea that, that Lincoln ended up uh, 
taking to the White House was you get rid of slavery and every every man will have the freedom to either engage in uh, profitable work for an employer or if they don't like those conditions, they can fuck off and be a yeoman farmer. Because hey, look what we just did with the Homestead Act. I mean, that the Homestead Act was America's land reform agenda. Uh, the kind of thing that uh, would have been impossible in in any European country without a war. And, and the thing that led to most of the right-wing coups in Latin America uh, in, the, in the 20th century was land reform. We were able to do it because the people we were expropriating land from weren't existing stakeholders like United Fruit or whatever in Central America in the 50s. They were Native American tribes who weren't part of what we consider to be the polity. And so they could be pushed aside. And that gave this, that opened these huge expanses and that created this this notion that, hey, we can have like an egalitarian, the, the Jeffersonian model made real. But of course, over the course of the war to defend that, you create this industrial behemoth that pretty much, that in the decades after the Civil War swallows everything. And then I think what a lot of people do is they look backward through that lens and say this was inevitable and everyone at the time knew they were doing this. And neither of those is true. I, I don't I hope nobody is thinking that um, I'm saying that like slaves couldn't resist their enslavement of course they did but it was sure it was it was a categorically different thing to try to uh, withhold labor as an enslaved person with with your with your color branding your position as one as a slave uh, than a colonist who's like hired who would hypothetically be hired to pick cotton and then could literally just walk off whenever he wanted to if he wasn't getting enough money to make it worthwhile to do. And there was no, and there was no way that could have worked because the thing about those, um, uh, those large-scale uh, cash crop industries is that the actual work was awful. I mean, cotton wasn't even the worst of it. Sugar was honestly uh, one of the most nightmarish existences possible, being a, a slave on a sugar plantation. There's not enough money you could pay a free person to make them do that especially in a condition where they could, of material abundance, where they could find their own sustenance elsewhere. I saw this travel stimulus thing. God, that's so funny. Just here's, here's a tax credit to go on a vacation. Just so adorable. I, you'd think a Democrat would have come up with that one. Oh, it's so good. And of course, it's not even a free money. It's a goddamn tax credit, which means you have to have four grand that you don't, that you cannot see until next year in your tax return. Wild. As we know, before COVID, something like half of Americans don't have $500 to go through an emergency uh, uh, situation. And yet, no, they're going to do it so that everybody who has four grand to sit, to not be in their bank account for a year or more and to go on vacation when the goddamn virus is still everywhere when it's going like wildfire through all of the red states as anyone could have predicted the whole time we were sitting sitting tight here in New York and all the fucking rubes were, were yuck yucking the reply was just wait and now whom could have predicted except everyone that's what's happening 
So you're saying, hey, you guys, go into the heart of a, of, of a plague outbreak or come from one to a place that doesn't have one. One way or another, make sure to mix it up. Make sure to mix it up. You could just give people the money. You could give people the money, which would stimulate local economies, and that would even affect places that have a tourist-based economy. Because people still live there, and they still have to live, you know, buy things, but it's harder because they don't have income. Well, you replace the income. How about that? With actual money. Oh, dear. How can, can you imagine? Can you imagine such a thing? Uh, but McSally's co cooked. Uh, she's going to go down as like an all-time loser. Losing, losing an elect, getting appointed to a, 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 a seat, losing it, then get appointing to a different seat, and then losing that one. Scott Brown level loser. Oh yeah, Scott Brown, Scott Brown won election. McSally was just appointed. Two-time loser. I do like the idea, though, of giving people four grand that they can only spend on a vacation. I mean, that would be dumb, too. You should just keep people money without strings attached. You should always just be keeping... I mean, as long as we're in this hell world... Hell economy, and you know, as long as, as long as we're just at the level of demanding, uh, you know, re, uh, redistribution rather than of, of money rather than power. For the love of God, just give people money strings attached. But the idea of giving people four grand, but they have to take a vacation. I would love to just see what people did with it. People who'd never taken a vacation before, they're not going to let that because it's like you either use it or you don't get it. So it's like who, you know, fuck it, let's do it. And people who've never taken like a, a, a never gotten on an airplane before or whatever, or people who would never think to travel are now doing it where would you go I mean yeah like uh, it would be like a Brewster's million situation uh, and that would be awesome I mean if we're gonna have we're gonna be wacky have fun let's go all the way like the tax the tax incentive thing is awful because yeah it's just it's just the same rich assholes who go on vacation anyway only now they get to do it for free make people spend the money on a vacation real money like give it to them in a form of like a uh, of like a debit card that's only accepted at certain places. Like it's only accepted by airlines, you know. The same way like a WIC card is limited. You can't buy hot food or whatever. Uh, can only buy uh, airline tickets and uh, hotels and like <laughs> uh, restaurants in cities that it knows you don't live in. I do love the idea of somebody taking four grand to go like just themselves. Four grand to go to Wisconsin Dells and just live like an absolute maniac at the Dells, like just tipping, tipping, tipping the kid at the Tommy Bartlett Thrill World when you come in, demanding backstage access at Noah's Ark to see where they like skim out all the shit and whatever. But I think that's, I mean, that, and that would be such a perfect emblematic moment. Like, the country is clearly teetering on the edge of some sort of significant 
I don't want to say collapse because that does sound alarmist and institutions like these often are more resilient than you think they are. And the, the, like I've often pointed out, the world economy still needs America to be the, uh, the employer of last, uh, the consumer of last resort. But it's, we're still clearly sh uh, in a free fall away from uh, even the meager status, the meagerly satisfying and in fact mostly miserable status quo that we were slowly coming acclimatized to. Even that's going away. And to, in the meantime, just have everybody go on vacation, go on a state subsidized vacation, like some like Russian factory workers going to the fucking Black Sea on, on like a, on a on a on a package deal with everyone else on their shift. Amazing. Let's do it. Yeah, that'd be funny. Take four grand to Cuba and just like give it to the government. China has been building counter hegemony. Has it? Because it does really seem to me that right now China has basically just at adjoined a hegemony. I mean, they have, they have, there's still like geopolitical rivalry between the United States and, uh, and the U.S., or the United States and China, but it seems to me that it's mainly over who gets to be in charge of the hegemony, which is different than like the existential conflict of the Cold War. I want to I find like the shittiest tourist spot in America, a place where no one would ever go. Like, um, oh, you know what would be funny? Go to fucking, uh, go to the goddamn Corn Palace and Wall South, the, uh, or Wall Drug, that's it. Go to Wall Drug in South Dakota. One of the stupidest, chintziest, fucking awful, lame, uh, tourist attractions in the entire country. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's actually a genius of marketing. Uh, so, there's... In South Dakota, there's one, I forget which one, but there's a highway that runs along like the southern track of it that if you're going cross country is usually, I was going, I was driving cross, I was driving halfway cross country, I was driving from Wisconsin to Washington State. And the way to do that fastest is you just cut through a highway that just goes all the way straight across southern, uh, the south quarter of South Dakota. It is the most, the most desolate, empty stretch of road I have ever encountered in the country. And I've driven cross country several times. I've been through Kansas, I've been through a lot of very empty, I've been to the high desert. Nothing is as desolate feeling as South Dakota. It is genuinely like empty, you know? Just fields, fields, no animals even. No cops. I didn't see a cop on the highway the whole time. I got fucking pulled over five minutes after I got in Wyoming, though. Uh, so your drive is incredibly featureless. And so on the way, when you're going east to west, there are a bunch of billboards. I, I don't know, like every 50 miles or 100 miles or so that say, coming up, exit whatever, wall drug, wall drug. And you just see them as you're driving. It's the only thing you see is wall drug exit upcoming and you by the time you go through enough of south dakota you've been broken down mentally so much by the monotony that you've built up wall drug in your head 
as some sort of paradise. So of course we stopped at Waldron, even though we didn't have to. Their whole thing was free ice water. And we go there and it's just a giant drugstore that's like old timey western themed and has like, uh, you know, um, the walkways, the thoroughfare walkways with, you know, the, 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 the wood and it's got the overhang. It's like an old timey, like a western set, only it's just a giant drugstore with like a bunch, a shit ton of, um, of very pedestrian uh, uh, souvenirs for like the Black Hills and shit. Uh, and shit like, oh look, it's uh, it's refrigerator magnets shaped like all the states. And then there's a couple of uh, animatronics, sort of like a country bear jamboree, only they do not go on. You gotta like press a button. And I was in there for maybe 10 minutes and we got out and I was like, that's fucking so lame, I hate it. I wanna take my $4,000 check from Donald Trump and go to wall drug. Just like give it to them and say, can I stay here? Can I just like sleep here in wall drug for four grand and like just take out a wheel a wheelbarrow full of stuff? They probably say yes. But no, the pimp move, I've never driven through it since, but the pimp move, and this is I think what really distinguishes the alpha mindset from the beta, and I was a beta at the time. If you drive through South Dakota for the first time, have you not been to wall drug? You drive through South Dakota, you take that whole area, and you don't stop. That's the alpha. That's the Chad posture. I did. I was the virgin. I learned my lesson. But sadly, I can never prove it because now I know it sucks. And you often see bumper stickers because they sell bumper stickers that say wall drug. And then people get them and put them on their car, I think, because they have such a deep association now between wall drug and their trip they just spent like a solid day just staring at billboards that said wall drug and they feel like they're now in some way their trip and wall drug are the same and they've never left wall drug they go into the bathroom of wall drug and there's an attendant there going you've always been here you've always been at wall drug yeah i stayed at a uh i stayed at a motel in kadoka south dakota which is by wild coincidence, and I didn't even realize this until years later, that's also where uh, where Michael Clark Duncan's character has to get picked up by the FBI during the Gather the Crew montage in Armageddon. But anyway, I stayed in a motel there. It was one motel in an inner, and, uh, on an off-ramp. No town. It wasn't part of, you know, where you see like 15 Best Westerns and La Quintas or whatever, and there's a McDonald's and fucking friendlies and a chuckle fucks just off-ramp basically like a fucking cinder block low-strung uh, motel and that's it and it had a it had a screen it had a glass sliding door and it smelled like someone had died in it not been murdered but like mummified by time yeah South Dakota the Black Hills are nice uh, Mount Rushmore, lame. Not just because it's a bunch of presidents on sacred Indian land, although that is disgusting. It is also chintzy and shitty. Stuff like Mount Rushmore really does, is the, like, because uh, Mount Rushmore was a huge project at the time. I mean, obviously. It took years. 
it was a massive undertaking. It, it gathered America's imaginations. Uh, the, 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 this is an interesting uh, factoid. Gutzon Borglum, the non-American who designed Mount Rushmore, uh, when he was in the United States, he became uh, very, very taken with Southern culture, as it were, and uh, he helped. He designed Stone Mountain there, which is another etching on the side of a bluff of a bunch of uh, Lee Davis and Jackson, uh, and he joined the KKK. But anyway. This is like a symbol of American culture, right? Like, like when 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 the Anglo-Saxon weirdo types, like when 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 the deck when when the Western architecture type guys show their pictures of Don Draper and they're like, "What we what we used to have," like their idea of culture is shit like Mount Rushmore, and it fucking sucks. It's lame. It's really small, and it's it's just its faces on a mountain. I mean, other than like the kind of ghoulish, uh, 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 you know, Alan Moore style, like evil ritual magic of putting that on the land, the sacred land of a people who'd been uh, massacred by the people on those fucking, on that, like there's a dark majesty to that. There's like an evil, there's kind of an Arbart Mark Fry feeling to it, that sort of curdled, uh, curdled sarcasm and cynicism that's at the heart of authoritarianism. The culture is dog shit. And I'd really love to see some tanks. You know what I would like to see? If somebody's going to destroy Mount Rushmore and someone's going to destroy Stone Mountain, I would love it. But if it's like some corporate PR move, uh, you know, like uh, Coca-Cola presents Stone Mountain and they just like put Donald Glover there next to them to balance it out or something, an outcast, that will suck. What would be awesome is if those things got destroyed with some good old-fashioned tank rounds. Roll in some Abrams tanks, set up the shot, and just blow them up. Like that old newsreel shot of that, uh, of that big swastika, I think, in Nuremberg getting blown up by a cannon. And you know why that would be cool? Because if you've got tanks, that means you have a control of the state and you are instituting a new rule at the material level and you're blowing up those old monuments to a dead society because you are building a new one that is the iconoclasm that I would love to see and I, and I, the, the, the current one just feels like a very honestly kind of sad substitution Yeah, oh god, strafing run of A-10 Warthogs with the fucking... <laughs> fucking Stonewall Jackson's head just... <laughs> but you need to get the tanks first. So the next time you're imagining, oh, I really want to get rid of that statue, it's like, do you really want to get rid of it? If you really want to get rid of it, you'll do it from a position of authority. So that you're... you're, you're you are enshrining a new order, a new just order. You're not painting over the facade of a rotten old order, which is all we're trying to do right now. See, that's why I don't like that. Like that, that that's always been the thing that's annoyed me, or I guess not even annoyed me. You amuse me about the con the word tanky. 
either as something that people use as a term of abuse or as something that people self-describe with. Where are the tanks? What tanks are you referring to? There's no tanks. In 1956, the so they were talking about Soviet tanks rolling into uh, Budapest. What tanks are you talking about now? I mean, some people would say like uh, Assad uh, or maybe like the, the Chinese or something like that. Uh, and I guess like that's an argument. I don't buy it, but it's an argument. But unless you have that belief that like, no, it's the PRC. That's an actual like socialist counter hegemony with billionaires uh, <laughs> that's doing actual colonialism. Uh, but never mind. They're all secret communists. If you want to believe that, that's fine. At least there's a tank in your mind that exists in the real world that somebody could drive somewhere. For anyone else, it's like, there's no tanks. You're assuming a tank. So that means that you're, like, operating from the assumption of a party in power, i.e. the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, controlling a state and a geostrategic uh, geo sphere of influence and managing it, like in the game Twilight Struggle. Your ideology is from the position of maintaining that position. That is not the current position of the left in this country, or the West, or anywhere, I would argue. Except for, maybe maybe you can argue Cuba, and I think, I mean, they have power within their own country, but it's so constrained by us, you know? But they were able to kick the fucking South Africans out of uh, Namibia, so uh, maybe I'll say can't, uh, Cuba. But, like, they can't really, It's they're an unrealistic... They're a bastion, but they cannot be a counter-hegemon because they're too small. They're too tiny. They're little guys. Their tanks aren't going to be able to roll up on our tanks, for example. We have to take over the tanks. we got to get in the tanks, somehow. Tearing down statues, somebody's asking, tearing down statues is something. I would say it can be something if it does what the, what the person writing suggested, which is give people a sense of possibility changing. To give them a sense that things can be different. But if it's just a sense of that, once again, we're not anywhere. It has to arise, it has to, that feeling, that feeling of things are possible has to be channeled into some sort of container something that 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 where decisions can be where a, a class of a, where a plan of action where an actual strategy can be deliberated agreed to and then carried out that has to exist that has to be made so if pulling down statues gets people thinking this is worth enough time and energy and investment into into making those structures then it's useful. If it says, hey, we pull down these statues, maybe that means we can pull down these other bigger statues. Hey, we pull down the statue of these Confederates, maybe that means we can pull down the statues of these Union uh, uh, generals because they were racist too and they killed a lot of Indians as well and, and America's bad. And then maybe we can pull down, uh, uh, you know, and then you got Sean King saying, hey, let's also start destroying images of white Jesus.
Sean King is not right, by the way. If you think Sean, Pena, Sean King is right, you are either a moron or you are, like him, a cop. I'm sorry. Sorry. Nope. I mean, you can argue why that's theoretically right all day, but once again, you are building the world's stupidest and most pointless ship in the world's most fragile bottle. You're in the real world. What is, what is advanced? How would you go about doing that? And what would be advanced by doing it? Answer me, someone in here who thinks that's a good idea, answer me one of those two questions. The thing is, is that people justify the, these weird libidinal indulgences by saying, yeah, but they deserve it. And I gotta quote Sean Penn here, deserves not, got nothing to do with it. Nobody deserves anything. None of us have free will to each other. Like I said, we all have free will ourselves because we are ignorant of what is making us do what we're doing. But from outside of ourselves, looking at everyone else, no one else has free will because we can determine why they're doing what they're doing. So getting mad at everybody and talking about deserve and, and vengeance on a personal level just reifies this all as a culture war because where else can you fight out these sort of battles about, about points of etiquette, essentially social etiquette? You can say that they're important and they are, but they boil down to ways of acting in public, which is etiquette. How do you adjudicate that at any level other than the cultural? That's the only place you'll ever be able to, to negotiate those, those, those arguments and they won't filter down because anything that challenges from the, from the culture gets fucking recuperated until it can't because of overspill. And that comes because, uh, because people channel it. People create a collective will out of a, out of a class consciousness and affect change by confronting capital by denying it the ability to extract profit and requiring it to change the conditions in which uh, capitalism operates to either the point of a reform or to the point of abolition. But the thing that people shouldn't do and that I see too many people do is just decide to write everything off because of these facts. As though we don't live in a highly mediated society. As though this isn't always, the hardest problem isn't always going to be to re-socialize people who have been de-socialized by their, their entire lives. And that this is exactly how things would be, uh, uh, be challenged. Like the, the rejoinder uh, about the protest that is always most baffling to me is when people say, look, uh, look at all these corporations that like it and look at all these uh, brands and celebrities and famous rich people who are co-opting it. It's like they're trying to recuperate it. That's what capitalism does to all challenges to it in any way. They might succeed but pointing out that they're trying isn't saying anything. Oh, God, and that's the other thing. It's like someone says, maybe this makes people feel like, you know, things are possible, but look where the movement is happening. Like, now, we've literally gone another level of abstraction away from actual statues and real physical space to now 
television shows and not even new ones. Doing a cultural revolution about 20 year old programs. That ain't good. That's not progress. That is more flight from the lack of uh, accountability. In fact, none of us are accountable to each other because we have not we have not invested any any symbols or people or institutions with uh, authority over us, which we're going to have to do. At some point, we're all going to have to. If 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 the left coalesces into anything meaningful in this country, at some point we are all going to have to submit in that we are going to have to give up some control over our lives, some control over of what we do, some control over when we do it, some control over ourselves to someone else in the form of a um, organization that will have central discipline. Because that's the only way you get to do, get, you, you can apply force is through coordination. Otherwise, it's just undirected force is, is destroyed in piecemeal. Only unified coordinated force can push through. You guys ever see, uh, you guys ever see Finding Dory? One of the most moving scenes in Finnish cinema history, in my opinion. It's when, towards the end, when Dory and, uh, Albert Brooks are swimming in a big sea of dumbass fish that are just all going blip, 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 and they get caught in a fucking one of those big old industrial fishing uh, uh, nets and they're getting pulled up and they're all gonna get oh god we're gonna get turned into fish sticks and all the fish are swimming crazily wildly uh, against the, the the net but by their own instinct and then Dory and Albert Brooks get them to stop freaking out and they go in one direction they all swim down at the in this point in the same way and the fucking net breaks off of the fucking rope that is that is the labor movement that is the left that's the modern left and when it succeeds anyway and that's the goal that's the entire thing Finding Nemo, whatever. If you're not pushing in the same direction, it's just gonna get, it's just, your, your individual effort will eventually be refu uh, diffused. Uh, see, and that's the thing, we can't communicate to each other. But the thing is, we are, I really think a big part of it is it's not just it isn't just that we're all isolated it physically and that we don't have uh, like we don't have hegemonic uh, institutions of communication that we can like invest enough uh, belief into to to credit what they're saying so that we can build like a ideology that or uh, build a class consciousness like simultaneously by listening to the same thing because not enough of us are listening to the same thing with the same amount of uh, 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 credulity. That is a problem, but I'd say another problem is that we have been turned into such individuals. We, we fetishize our individual desires so much. We have been had it grained into us so much that freedom is our ability to 
uh, indulge our desires. Like that's why you see a lot of people correctly say capitalism isn't freedom because you are forced to work, uh, you know, and, and um, you'd be freer if you had more vacation and you had more control of your workplace and all that stuff. That's true, but it, it only begs the question of what freedom means. And the unexamined answer is what I want to do. But of course, you don't want to do what you want to do. None of us want to do what we want to do. We, don't, we do what we have been taught to want to do. And that means that we bound up with our notion of the society we want, a lot of things that are coping mechanisms for the society we have, things that wouldn't be necessary in a new society we're building and that we can let go of in the immediate moment if we're reorienting ourselves around a project, an actual project that we wanted to see executed. We can kind of let drop those things, but nobody wants to drop it. Nobody wants to drop it because we don't have anything that we really believe in enough to invest that much faith into to give up something that to this point has really been helping us, just helping us live with the horror of the world around us. Not realizing that if we drop that, the work will fill the hole. The submission will be the freedom because you will feel fulfilled. You will feel the sort of satisfaction that what the other thing you used to fetishize only gave you a, fa a very faint echo of. But you have to have faith to make the first jump and nobody believes in anything enough to make the first jump. So that's a problem that we gotta deal with. The problem we all live with, as Norman Rockwell said, the name that's the name of his um, that's the name of his famous painting of uh, the what was her name? The girl who de uh, desegregated, I think, the New Orleans school district. I'm actually drinking chocolate milk. Favorite cut of French fry? I've yet to encounter a French fry that's better than the McDonald's French fry. I, I consider that sui generis. And a piping hot McDonald's French fry is genuinely delicious. Ruby Bridges, that's the right name. One of the most uh, chaotic uh, mo things about uh, Amber is that she likes like room temperature McDonald's French fries, which is blows my mind. The hot ones. And I know, yeah, I probably had better, like, individually, but just as a category, my experience with them is better than my experience with any other discrete category of fry. I do kind of like the string, uh, the shoestrings. I like them shoestringy. I like the crispy. I don't like the thick. I don't like steak fries. I don't like it where it's got, like, the pappy potato-y flavor in the middle. I like it when it's, um, I like it when it is crisp. I never get fries at Popeyes because I don't like the, because I, I only get the, because uh, Popeyes, why would you get anything as a side but the mashed potatoes?
many, many French fries. One of his, one of the few moments he had fun in his presidency. Uh, handsome, handsome, handsome quarterback hamburger party. The truck. When he got to ride the truck, when they put him on the aircraft carrier and he wore the uniform, uh, and when he gave the medal to the hero dog. Those were those were moments that were nice, but the thing is, he hasn't thought about them since they happened. He was happy for a second, and then he was thinking about how unfair Greta Van Sustern was to him. And that's and then it's gone. So like he doesn't even remember those days. I love Culver's. Culver's is great. Wisconsin excellence, right there. Butterburgers, you know it. Oh, put the fries in the mashed potatoes. Okay, now you're getting interesting. Get an extra side. All right, I might do it. I definitely pity Trump. Trump's miserable. I mean, you should you should have like some sort of you should try to extend empathy to every human being because every single person is only where they are through the happenstance of their life, what, who, what and when they encountered people and places and things. And because their, their response to those that might seem to be self-generated was really just a reaction that, is so, that, is, that was bubbled up in the subconscious that was never even thought of, that was beyond thought. So even though it's totally determined with, by, within the psyche, it's completely invisible and mysterious. So nobody's, nobody's where they are for any malevolence within them. I mean, the malevolence builds over time. The malevolence is turned towards. But it's all in the, in the, in the context of, of where and when they, they existed. So, yeah, I, I empathize with Hitler. I empathize with everybody a little bit. But the thing is, because no one... Because within Hitler, if you're imagining you're Hitler, or you imagine you're Trump, you don't know. You don't know how determined you are. You can choose to break out of that. You can choose toward, to, to, to turn towards good, turn towards uh, uh, truth, toward, turns towards universal humanity, turn towards uh, an awareness of like what is, what is to be good, what the good represents, as in like the, the fundamental union of all beings, the fundamental oneness of all in the universe. You can turn towards that at any minute. And if you don't, you fucked up. And so you should be sanctioned and stopped from doing bad things and punished. Maybe you'll learn. And if you don't, at least you've been kept away from other people. But it doesn't mean that you have to hate personally. And it doesn't mean that you have to deny someone, anyone, the benefit of trying to extend your mind into theirs with their experience and try to piece it together. I mean, Trump's very easy to piece together. His dad, his parents were monsters. His, his parents were essentially... The, the, the father and mother from The People Under the Stairs. Anybody seen that movie? The gimp suit blowing away, blowing holes in the walls. Just complete psychopaths who treated their children with monstrous, abusive disdain. Uh, the, and like, he had a brother, he had an older brother, Fred Jr., who, who could not take it, who couldn't take the pressure and because he was honestly, I think, a better person than Trump in that he responded better to the traumas of his birth and his, his, his childhood, left the family, ended up 
becoming a pilot, uh, died of alcoholism, but that was because he couldn't take what they had done to him. Uh, whereas Donald just became like the whip dog, and now his entire life has been trying to get this fantasy monster, this this ghoul, and if anyone has seen a picture of Fred Trump, he is an actual walk, living, he was a living skeleton, to, to, to tell him he's good, which will never happen. And so he's, he's been miserable every moment of his life. He's never been happy. And that sucks. The thought of that, somebody who can never have a moment, who can never just exist for a second and not be beset by demons, by, by, by insecurity, by, by loathing and fear of others, awful. Yeah, and Fred Trump's father did the same to him. Awful fucking crypto-Nazi motherfuckers. The worst of the, the, the German authoritarian Prussian lineage. Those fucking Prussians, man. Those sandy, stiff-necked assholes. Bavarians just want to party. Bavarians just want to wear leather shorts and drink comically large steins of beer. Prussians want to take over the world. Alright, guys. Uh, I'm up, done for today. This is a good one. Hitler was not Bavarian. He was Austrian. He did start in Munich, yes. But he never... Uh, the Nazis never got the majority of the vote in Bavaria or any of the Catholic parts of Germany because of the center party, which was explicitly Catholic. Um... He ran up all of his big margins in Protestant uh, parts of Germany. Anyway, we'll talk more about that maybe on a different episode because it's very fascinating. The 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 uh, like the electoral map of uh, of Weimar Germany very interesting. Uh, bye bye.